Well, good morning again, and we are back into the book of John, and last week, uh, last couple weeks, Justin and Tim have done a, a great job kind of taking us through, a couple guys who don't get to preach all the time, but did an, did an excellent job as we uh, start marching forward. We are still talking about this. How many of you have received one of these? If you just put your hand up real quick. It's a Bible reading plan. We handed them out about a couple weeks ago, and this is really what we're centering on. If you haven't grabbed one of these, they are available out at our info counter. I want you to grab one so that you um, can be able to kind of dive in with the rest of the church. And what this is, it's a question of Christian life. You know, many of us as Christians, you may be a beginning Christian and you may be staring at the Bible going like, I have no idea how to eat this thing or how to get through this thing. It's huge. There's so many stories. I'm confused. What do I focus on? What do I not focus on? And others of you have been Christians for years and you've read through your Bible. In fact, you've read certain books over and over and over again. It's almost like been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, right? to move on. And so how do you go from being, how do you not become bored on as a Christian? And, and so what we've done is we've asked these four questions. We've given you, they're called the Bible discovery method. We use them in missions. And so they're very helpful for us to just kind of continue to open the layers up. And those four questions are what we've been kind of centering in on in our preaching the last few weeks. And to, especially today, as we dive into this section of the book of John, we are examining um, kind of a very interesting, interesting thing, namely the cross. Because talk about an area that we've all heard a lot about, we've read over and over and over again. We do one whole day out of every year focused on the cross. And for me this year, it kind of took me in a different direction. In fact, it, was a, it took me back to a time when I was actually hanging out with Nick. Nick and I had an opportunity to get on a plane with Cal Baptist and fly over to Germany, where we connected with Muslims who were teaching, or Muslims who were uh, from Turkey. And these missionaries were connecting with these Muslims, and we were supposed to help out by making some connections and kind of pointing to the missionary. And in the middle of all of that um, enjoyable time of just connecting and prayer walking and doing the stuff that we did, we stopped and we got on a train, the whole team that we were with, and we traveled through Berlin all the way to the edge of Berlin in the northern, northeastern edge. And we came to this area that was kind of looked like a normal but kind of older area with some storefronts and maybe a little, I think it was a little elementary school or something, and suddenly you walked down this dirt path, gravel path, and you came out to this open area with these large buildings, and you, then we paid money, and, and we went inside, and the place was called Sachsenhausen. It was a concentration camp. And in Sachsenhausen, you came out into the entrance, and there used to, were the pads that used to hold all of the barracks that held all these human beings who had been taken and ultimately, many of them, murdered. And as we walked through this place, there was a solemnness about it. You walked through some of the areas where the people actually slept, and they actually still had some of them up, and, and you saw the special cells for the, the special prisoners uh, of Hitler himself, and then you went into these other locations, and I can remember staring down to this pit. There were some stone stairs that led down to the right and down to this open pit where they would hold people for a time until they walked them into the, into the, into the crematorium, alive or the, where they would do the showers, and ultimately they would pile bodies in this place and burn them at just en masse, constantly, constantly burning humanity. But the creepiest, most difficult place to step into was the hospital. You stepped inside and three long slabs were laid out that you would stare at and you could look at where 
quote, doctors would take people and they would run their experiments on them. Uh, uh, human beings that they claimed were not human beings on one level so they could kill them and exterminate them. On the other level, they were going to do experiments on them to find cures for human beings. And they would cut these people open. They would do these torturous events in this room. And it was disturbing, creepy to stand in this place. I'll be honest, I don't think anybody in their right mind on this planet walking through a location like that would not feel a sense of overwhelmed, just gross, disgusting, creepy fear, horror, dread, some kind of dark emotion. And how could, I mean, something would have to be really wrong if you, eventually you got to the place where you're just walking through socks and I was like, oh yeah, and over here, this is where this happened. And it never just continued to affect you. And yet stop and think about it. We walk through that scene annually and it doesn't really affect us. We walk through that scene every year, every time, roughly around Easter, and it doesn't really grab us. It doesn't shake us and cause dread in a lot of us. And I think it's because, honestly, how many of you grew up in church? You had like a children's ministry experience of yourself? Okay, and see, my kids are having that children's ministry experience, and what's awesome is they've got really cool Bibles out for kids. You know, like the Action Bible. Anybody seen the Action Bible? It's like the comic book Bible. What's funny is how they've, and how, how they and, and selective curri- curriculums have skipped certain stories in the Bible. You ever notice that? That you're working through Genesis and you got Adam and Eve and you're looking at the comic book Bible and you're going like, I don't know if Adam and Eve are supposed to be a comic book character. And so you're, you're kind of flipping forward as fast as you can. And you're like, let's get into some of the good stuff. Abraham, awesome. But they never really tell you what Abraham and Hagar, what, what's up with that in, the, in these children's Bibles. You move on and they conveniently skip over a couple quick stories right there at the beginning. Like Levi and Simeon, you know, trying to defend their sister who just got raped. So they tell these guys, you know, go get circumcised. And then they kill them all while they're being healed. You know, where's the coloring page for that one in children's ministry? Let alone Judah running around, you know, meets this girl, this prostitute, and actually is his daughter-in-law. And you're like, that's weird. And what's up with these weird stories that we just kind of conveniently skip over because we, we can't run a VBS off of that kind of stuff. And yet we can't take the cross and skip it. You can't just conveniently go, well, skip the cross because that's too dangerous for our children. That's just too bloody. Instead, you know what we do? We clean the cross up. We make coloring pages where you color it brown and it's got lilies popping out at the bottom and maybe this nice thing hanging over the top of them. We're like, it's the cross. Some of you are wearing golden crosses on your necks right now. I, I just think after today, you may feel that's a little weird. But hold on because... When we look at the, the picture, what we're walking through is a Sachsenhausen. We're walking through a concentration camp picture. As we examine the text in John chapter 19, what we've done is we've anesthetized and cleaned it up because of the resurrection, the glory of what happens with Jesus in the end, to be able to handle it. And yet, the staros, which is the Greek word for cross, was so horrific in the minds of the ancient world, we have only two really vague descriptions Otherwise, when it's referenced, it's referenced in such a manner as to talk about that horrid, bloody torture, that dishonor of ultimate kind, and where we end up with this picture that they just weren't going to describe what had happened. And yet you and I, had we walked along the road with our children from, say, any, any location in, in, your, in all of Rome at the time, 
the Roman Empire, we would have come, let's go to market, come on out. And by the time we came near a city, inevitably you would begin to see them. These posts that were standing straight up, and they weren't electrical poles. These were actually posts waiting for victims. Oftentimes, you may have come along, and suddenly you noticed there were dead corpses hanging on those posts, tied up by their arms, being pecked out by birds, sitting there rotting in their place. And as you kind of probably shielded your children's eyes, the horror was causing trauma in your own soul let alone if you had to watch one occur, which was oftentimes a spectacle that the community was brought out for because of the shame that was involved. And so I want to take a minute before we dive into this passage and put it into the context of the ancient world and put it in the context of like a third world culture in which we would have experienced the horror and trauma of this kind of stuff day in and day out so much that even when the disciples speak of it, they don't put a lot of detail. Because everyone knew. You said Stauros, you said cross, and they knew what you were talking about. There were three, there were actually four stages in the Stauros. Jesus has already, now, now taking in Jesus' consideration, he's already been beat up a couple of times at two different trials, and now he has been caned in this last reading that we had as he was brought before Pilate, and Pilate kind of just says, okay, let, let's just give him a light punishment, and then we'll bring him up, show him off, and send him out. And so they had caned him already in what was called the Roman, uh, in a Roman, uh, basically, it wasn't a scourging, but in a, I forgot the name, wow, it's gone. Okay, anyway, they, they punished him. So they smacked him real hard with these canes, brought him out, said, hey, here's the guy. And they said, no, we want him crucified. So now, as he sat down, Pilate sat, he said, now you're going to be crucified. They would take Jesus into another chamber, at which point they would stretch him out and they would do the, not a Roman flogging, which is the word I was looking for first, but now they're going to scourge him. A scourging involved a cat of nine tails. And it was, a nine, it was nine whips that came out with bone and things attached to the end of it, at which point they would lash you 39 times, tearing open your skin, lashing you forward, bearing forth the, even to the bone at times so that you could see the organs on the inside. Now taking that, that, that man, they would take him and lead him out in front of people and they would put a cross beam, not the whole cross. It's not like the passion where he's climbing around with the, the whole thing, dragging it, just the cross beam. And they would put it on your shoulders and this 50 plus pound beam would carry you as you would walk through the streets of your city where the people would mock and harangue you because of the dishonor that was supposed to be brought upon you. That's the second stage. Scourging to the movement of dishonor in front of everyone. Once you reached the place where your crucifixion was going to occur, they would now take you, soldiers would hold your arms against the beam, and they would either tie you up, depending on what kind it was, or they would drive nails somewhere in between the palm and the wrist because it needed to be affixed strong enough. In in any case, have you ever hit your funny bone hard enough that it just burns like crazy? Anybody been there? It's not a fun incident. That is the very nerve that gets severed by these nine-inch nails. And at the same time, it is not enough blood loss to die from it. And that was the point. The Romans had perfected this so that they could make sure you lived as long as possible. And when you died, you either died of asphyxiation from exhaustion, of attempting to breathe and pulling yourself up, or just from brain trauma from a lack of oxygen. 
Once they had crucified your arms, they would lift you into the air, hanging, and then they would drop you onto a pole that had been sitting out in the open. Now, this isn't a nice treated environmental pole that we have out and around us. Nobody came along every day and kind of made sure it was painted and nice and pretty. No, this is a pole that some other guy died on. His blood stuck inside this thing. It's got all of its splinters and everything exposed by the sun. And so when you got dropped on it, you were also dropped on this little seat. And the seat was there to keep you alive longer. It wasn't there as a grace. It was there because they knew if you needed air, just sit on the seat. You'll stay there for even longer in the torturous pain. Eventually, they would affix their feet. And it was up to the crucifier how they wanted to do that. And many of them did it as a, quote, work of art. Because you were stripped naked, they would affix you in multiple different positions depending on how much shame they wanted to give you. And so you can imagine your approach to this, this setting Because it would have cost you right at the city gates where everyone would see. And it would smell horribly. Not only had people rotted there previously, but anybody who was hanging on a cross had been there long enough. You eventually, your body gives up. You become incontinent. There is so much feces and garbage below the cross smelling the place up. It's not pretty. It's torture without a point. You see, this isn't torture to get information. This isn't torture so that you recant and do something. This is torture to kill. This is simply Rome saying, see how powerful we are? And it's in hushed tones then that these authors likely encountered this text as they began to explain it because the word stauros was so stark and vivid in the mind of the ancient world. It says, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. In Latin, it's Calvera. That's where we get the word Calvary. There they crucified him. They stalrossed him and with, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. So there's four soldiers sitting there. They've taken the the garments. They've kind of divided them between them. But there's one tunic. It was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it. Let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill what the scripture says. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his, mo- and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst, and a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, as we dive into this, we could get into the implications of what each verse means and all these things, but I just want to stop again and ask these four questions. Even in a text that's so familiar, the first question we want to ask ourselves is, what did I learn about God? Now, some of you today are going like, wow, this is a pretty yucky, intense situation. But there's so much involved in here that we can learn about God from. I want us to really ask the question, since Jesus is God and he's being crucified here, what is going on in this scene? What are we learning about God? First of all, this is my first note I wanted to take in, that God does his plan. He finishes his plan and upholds his word and he saves us. God will finish his plan and uphold his word. He doesn't just halfway kind of do stuff. That's me. Like I'm the guy who gets up in the morning. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to get up and I'm gonna build these windows in my house. And to this day, we still have some windows still left to do. I, I got halfway there. Uh, you know, I want to write a, I want to write a story. I get in a couple chapters. No, I'm done. I start lots of things, but I don't finish. But God finishes things. He knocks it out. He gets all the way to the end. He fulfills his word. Notice what it says a couple of times right here in the text in verse 24. It says, so that to one another, they said to one another, let's not tear up a cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says they divided my garments among them for their clothes and cast lots. Later, Jesus says to fulfill scripture. He says, I thirst. So there's this very clear focus. This is to fulfill scripture. All of this blood, all this gore, all of this suffering is to fulfill the scripture. Well, what are we talking about? What scriptures are we referencing? This is how faithful God is. Back in the Old Testament, there's a psalm called Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, it opens up with these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's the very words that Jesus speaks at the, be- at the beginning of his crucifixion on the cross. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It sounds like he's like upset with God, what's going on? And indeed, there's some intensity going on here, but he's referencing a scripture that becomes very interesting as you begin to read it. As it begins to unfold in verse 14, suddenly we begin to read a very interesting scene. It says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me and evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me and they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And this is written, as far as we know, at least a hundred years prior to the invention of crucifixion by the Assyrians. What is this interesting thing that God knew that someone would be pierced through and dying on the cross, surrounded by individuals who are mocking him later on in the psalm. These same individuals are gambling and dividing his clothing amongst themselves. Jesus was out to fulfill scripture, scriptures that God told us ahead of time, this will happen so that we would know that this is supernatural, that this is what God intends. I'll give you another one. And this is even more obvious in, in Isaiah chapter 53, which is a book that's pretty 
pretty fascinating. You see, Isaiah chapter 53, the, the earliest Hebrew manuscript we had for many, many years was written in 1000 AD. That's pretty late, don't you think? Considering the original was supposed to come around the 500s. Isaiah lived in the 500s. He writes and then it's passed on. And we go, okay, 1500 years later, we have one manuscript. What do we do with that? And yet, Many people claim that Isaiah 53 was written after the crucifixion because it matches too well the story of Jesus. It must be after Christianity's rise. And yet this little Bedouin boy is walking along one day out in the middle of the desert and he's looking for a lost goat and he's taking stones and he's throwing them up in these caves. And suddenly he hears this crack and he goes, what was that? And he climbs up into the cave and finds this treasure trove of manuscripts held by this people called the Essenes in the Qumran community. And we know these today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the greatest Dead Sea Scrolls that you can pull, that you can see is called the Great Isaiah Scroll. And it's all of the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah 53 is in it. And it dates to 100 years before Jesus was even on the planet. We have a document that's actually older than Jesus. And it states, and it has these, this very chapter, which says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before us like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom a man hides their face. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with, the wound, with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a, lamb, like a sheep that's silent before his shears, he didn't open his mouth. By opposition... And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he has done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and and he shall prolong his days. How does a man who's died in this manner and buried see his offspring and has his days prolonged? And here is a text that is clearly 100 years earlier than Jesus. And we get the story of Jesus because God fulfills his word. God knows for certain what is going to occur and it comes about. And so God's plan is going to happen. His word is secure and we can trust him. And it's revealed over and over and over again, especially in that final term where Jesus says this, it is finished. That word is tetelestai. And it's really um, been kind of co-opted by Dave Ramsey uh, as he has a bunch of people on his screen show up and say, we're debt free. That's what tetelestai actually means, to be completely forgiven of your debt. It's been paid off. It was what an accountant would stamp or deal with on a debt. Paid in full, debt-free, finished, to die. And Jesus chooses this word on the cross. He's saying, it's over, it's done. I've dealt with our sins. I finished the work. It's over. And then he breathed his last. God is good and perfect with his word. He handles it exactly 
and he will not fail to bring it about. Another thing that we learn about God is an interesting one. What's going on with him sitting on the cross? What you have is him on the cross and four women below him. There is Mary, his mother. There's Mary, and then there's Mary, and then there's not Mary. That's pretty much how that works out. I wonder if not Mary felt a little out of it. But um, what we do understand is this wife of Clopas, it's likely Mary, her sister. So there's an aunt to Jesus. And then the wife, Mary, the wife of Clopas, is, is um, actually been shown in some ways argued from argued from some scholars to be Joseph's sister and so here's aunt one aunt two and then Mary Magdalene who is going to be very prominent in the rest of the book and so here is this group of people and and in there suddenly is John the beloved disciples and Jesus looks down from his cross at them and he says behold woman doesn't call her mom you think he'd say mom in your last breaths, calls her woman, separates himself in a sense from the earthly connection to say, behold your son. At the same time, he says, behold your mother. And right there, he brings a connection that we should see as Christians. You see, from the cross, God cared a lot that the church would care for one another. He didn't say, hey, aunt, take care of mom for me. Hey, auntie number two, take care of mom for me. Hey, tell James it's his job now. No, he chooses instead the church member, the disciple, considered the perfect disciple in the text, to be the one who cares for his mother. He says, no, the church ought to care for one another, ought to care for the widows, ought to care for the orphans among us. We ought to be family to one another. So important that Jesus would say it from the cross and establish the care he desires within his church. God cares that much that we care about one another. In fact, that begins to lead quickly into application, doesn't it? And so it starts to ask that question. Well, what did I learn about, about people? What did I learn about man? What did I learn about, about humanity? And really, when you stop, I got to do this. I want to dive right into like, well, it means that we should care about each other. Actually, before I go there, you know what I learned about man? It reminded me, humanity is brutal. Do you agree? Once walked into a, a Starbucks and ran into my, my best friend growing up, his mom. And uh, in a conversation with her, we started talking about what I was doing. And she had been a school teacher in the district. And she was one, I knew she was Catholic. And so I was just kind of like talking to her about it. And she goes, oh, I don't go to church anymore. I'm like, oh, really? She's like, yeah. I mean, stop and think about it. And she starts referencing all the things that had occurred in, in World War II and all the atrocities that happen all over the world. And she says, what kind of good God could exist with this kind of mess? And I know she had just, her, my, my best friend had just, I think, lost a child. And my mom had, would die a couple years later. And you just start looking around. What kind of world is this that we live in? With this evil, the brutality, child soldiers, really? Is that what we need? Oh, okay, let's lynch people. That's a great idea. Oh, I got it. Let's, let's go around and make sure that, that people hang on a cross for hours and days before they die because we want to show how strong we are. What is with humanity? Why are we so broken? I mean, if you knew what I thought when I'm on the freeway and the other people who don't belong there were in front of me, and I actually acted on, I mean, I've invented like, I should have machine guns on this thing, pop their tires and I get around them faster. I mean, I just, the, the human heart is wicked. It comes up with, maybe mine is 
worse than yours, but the, the idea is that we're brutal. We are brutal. How do we deal with this kind of sin and evil? Why would God even make this world? He had the choice, didn't he? Way back before he made anything, he could have gone, never mind. But he made it. And at some point in that moment, when he made everything, he knew something. That's why I got to back up from what humanity is, back up to what did I learn about God. Here's what I learned about God. God planned to suffer. You see, if, if this is to fulfill Scripture, and this is to fulfill Scripture, this means it's in his plan. And if, God, if this is in his plan, God from the beginning didn't just plan a world with suffering and brutality of humanity where we hurt each other and kill each other and do awful things to one another. No, 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 no. He planned a world in which, yes, this would occur, and he would suffer the most. God isn't upstairs aloof like the, like the God that is preached around um, our, our water coolers at work or, or from our televisions and from our broadcasters and from our books that we read in popular culture, our magazines. Oh, God wouldn't do that. This isn't the Jesus that says, oh, he'd just love everybody. And, uh, you know, this is the Jesus that suffered for humanity. This is the God who said, when I create, I'm not just going to let all the suffering and the misery and the horror of 10-year-olds dying and horrible things and people tortured and disgusted. I'm not just going to leave that alone. I'm going to wrap it around me and take it and drink it full. And I'm going to do that and create knowing I'm going through this. I'm going to plan my suffering. That is an incredibly amazing act that God would say I love these people so much I know in their freedom they're going to do this horrible thing so in my freedom I'm going to choose to swallow it all and we choose some evil my friends and God chose to take it from us that's love and he didn't limit it to any, just a few people. No, he offered it to everybody, to the, to the guy on death row, to the, to, the, to the saint walking down New York Street. No, he's, he's, he has offered an equal platform from his love because he planned to suffer. He planned to bring this about. And then that makes me realize I can't escape his plan. Man can't escape his plan. I mean, you think about it, these Roman soldiers are sitting there. They don't know any better. They're choosing out of their own desire to, to take these garments, and they're falling right into God's plan. Jesus couldn't choose to die on a cross. That was the Roman procedure that they had for this. And Pilate did his best to keep him from the cross, and yet he still wound up on the cross out of the choices of people. You see, God... God knows we'll rebel. Try, push away from him, get away from him. He knew you'd do it. He's certain of it. He had already planned it. You can't escape his plan. Do all you can to get away from God. He knows you're trying to get away from him. You can't. He is the perfect planner. Nothing catches him by surprise. And so it is interesting that I want to just pull this together for myself that if God has this great plan and I can't escape it, but yet I'm still free to make my choices, then I got I to choose to follow him because he's loved me with his great love. He's made his great choice to bear our sins and to suffer for us. 
and give us this family to where we as a people who follow Christ can from the cross care for each other. It's not like we're so bound in our brutality we can't love each other. Guys, we can love one another. We can share the love of Christ. We ought to do that together. And that's the point. John took him in, took her into his home. He did it. We can take one another in. God's blessed you and blessed me with an abundance. And that abundance is, yes, for good vacations, but also to care greatly for one another at church, the family of God. And so he's given us this chance. He's given us this opportunity. Now, these are just a few observations. You've made different ones, maybe. Maybe you wrote those down. You're like, oh, this is what I learned about God. And you put that down. Maybe you wrote down, this is what I learned about humanity. It's a little different than mine. There were like five or six other observations I, I couldn't put in because of time. And so I want you to write these down. I want you to ponder this. Go back to this scene. Let it disturb you again. But look at who God is and look at what man is like. And answer those questions because that's the only way to move to this third point, which is what did I learn about myself. What did, I, what did I learn about myself in this? And you know what? Again, this is going to be different for you. You're going to write this down. But for me, it started with something that Brent said. We had a meeting in my office over this. We, we do this regularly. We kind of gather pastors together, have a conversation. And we say, hey, what, what's this text saying? And we go through that. Yeah, and Brent just put it this way. He's like, man, this, this text just hits me because it reminds me that I just don't know the depth of my own sin. And that just knocked me over. I was like, you're absolutely right. That God would suffer like this? And this is just a physical. We didn't even add in the fact that he spiritually is taking on our hell. That there on the cross for six hours, he bore the punishment for our sins. I just probably am excusing my sin a little too easily. You know, I'm probably justifying the scriptures that, 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 that deal with my soul just a little too simply. You know, I'm probably not taking seriously the evil and the brutality in my soul as much as God does. And wow, that just means I'm, I'm shrinking his love. And so I'm not saying I need to go home, be all miserable, and like, oh, I'm a sinner and this is horrible. Look how bad I am. But rather to just flip it and say, you know what? From what I do know, how great is God's love? Stare at what he has done for us. How much has he loved us? And just revel in that. And be amazed in that. I need to revel in God's love more. I don't do it enough. Second is this. I don't really, I've, I've discovered in myself, I don't really trust that God's word's always going to come about. Are anybody there with me? Like something, you see a promise of God and you're like, that's awesome. Not so sure that's going to work because you're looking at your bills and you've tithed throughout the months and you're going like, and it's shrinking and your bank account's getting smaller and you're starting to think, I don't know if I need to give. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're staring at this opportunity to go do something that you know is, is not, not really that smart of a deal. And that, that scripture, you know, you reap what you sow, what you do is going to come back. You're like, ah, God doesn't really mean that. So you do it anyway. That's what I'm talking about. The scriptures aren't always like serious to me. I may read them and I believe in them, but there are times where I wonder, am I going to be scared to death on my deathbed? Are you? And I want to be all confident, like, no way, I'm going to heaven, I know. But am I going to be freaked out? I don't know. But what this shows me is that God is faithful to his word and I got to trust him a little bit better. I got to take that risk when he says he's going to back me up for telling and preaching the gospel or stepping out. The third one for me was that I also, um, 
I also probably don't love the family of God as much as I should. That was the third one that kind of smacked me up. When I, when I was reading about how the church should love each other, I'm just like, oh man, I feel all guilty because I'm that guy. Honestly, sometimes you guys will call into the office and it gets through to my phone and I'm like, that thing's ringing. Does that thing, that thing is still plugged in? You know, it's like, I don't want, I'd rather just study my Bible by myself. And, and, you know, I got to pick it up and, and talk. And sometimes I get an email and my first impression, I hate this, but it's happened enough times that I see an email and I'm like, is this going to be another complaint? Is this going to, what is this? And, and you're nervous to open it because, you know, it steals your joy to serve sometimes when, when you're getting bad phone calls and complaints all the time. But to be honest, God just smacked me and said, guys, Greg, Come on, love them, love them, serve them. That's what you're here for. That's what we do as a church. And I love when I hear you guys, your small groups meeting together, connecting with each other who are in trouble. That's why we do small group. Not just to study, it's to do life and be connected with other people who can care for us. It's how we do ministry to one another. That's why we get together and we, we bring our needs. It's what our benevolence is about. That's why we serve and care for one another through James projects and things like that. Guys, this is about loving each other. And honestly, I, I just know myself, I have a lot of room I could grow. And so the three things, that last question, is applying differently. Yours are different. Again, you need to make it true, though. Apply it. What you learn about yourself, what God shows you, ask yourself, then what can I do in response? What do I need to do about it? What do I need to do about it? My, my thing was really I need to... Uh, First and foremost, journal about the love of God and the cross again. Just remind myself, just look at how much God loves me because that will ignite my love for others and my love for him. And that I need to re-engage that. And so that was my first one. And the second one that I put down here was just to really highlight or really just serve one person. And so this week I've been trying to do that. Whenever I had that one opportunity to go, uh, no, I don't think I'll do that. I've got other things to do. I decided to say yes. And that's led to some interesting conversations this week, sitting in front of some people that needed to be counseled when, when um, somebody else could have probably have done it. Or answering a long email that otherwise, you know, somebody else, again, somebody else would have been able to handle it. But just trying to put yourself out there to correct these aspects in your soul. What is it God has called you to do? Knowing that God has planned in his suffering, knowing that he's loved you like this, Knowing that he is, his word is sure and true. Knowing completely that the king has called his community to serve each other. What is it you're going to do about it? What is it that you're going to live out? So that's in your court. Why don't we pray? Father, thank you for the opportunities to examine your word. And thank you for the chance that we have to be a people who can learn to trust you more, learn to walk with you more faithfully, and God, to just be able to also see our deficiencies and be transformed by you. I pray that you would just bless this church, this congregation, to be in your word, to realize how much you've loved us, and to celebrate that. Because you planned, you planned to suffer on our behalf. You planned to love us with this great love to give us eternity with you. And we ask that we would just, in, just revel in that fact. In Jesus' name, amen.